Well, happy Mother's Day again. Uh, Great video, sometimes perhaps true with some of you. Moms, I just wanted to start out today and just say thank you for all you do. Thank you for the ways that you serve, the ways you love, the ways you give, the ways you invest your life into kids and even adults sometimes, ways that maybe seem uh, invisible, ways that seem hidden, and yet ways that will imprint lives forever. I just want to say for those of you that are moms, thank you so much. We want to honor you uh, this morning and just say we appreciate you so much. Oftentimes, I know it's a thankless job, but I want you to, to be reminded today that God sees you and he sees your labor and he sees all that you do and uh, it is of indescribable value. So thank you for your investment. I ran across an email that somebody sent me a while back uh, that I thought I'd start out with this morning. It's a story written to moms, uh, and it's a great one. I thought it would be appropriate for Mother's Day, but it also applies to what we're talking about today in general, and it's, it's entitled this. It's entitled, I'm Invisible. It goes like this. It's a mom writing. She says, it all began to make sense to me. The blank stares, the lack of response, the way one of the kids will walk into my room while I'm talking on the phone and ask to be taken to the store. Inside, I'm thinking, can't you see that I'm on the phone? Obviously not. No one can see if I'm on the phone, if I'm cooking, if I'm sweeping the floor, or even standing on my head in the corner because no one can see me at all. She says, I'm invisible. I'm the invisible mom. Some days, I'm only a pair of hands, nothing more. Can you fix this? Can you tie this? Can you open this? Some days, I'm not a a pair of hands. I'm I'm not even a human being. I'm a clock. Mom, what time is it? I'm a satellite guide. What number is the Disney Channel, right? I'm a car to order. Right around 5.30, please. I was certain that these uh, were the hands that once held books and eyes that had studied history, a mind that had graduated summa cum laude in my class. But now they disappeared into peanut butter, I guess, never to be seen again. She's going, she's going, she's gone. One night, a group of us were having dinner, celebrating the return of a friend from England. Janice had gotten back uh, from a fabulous trip, and she was going on and on about this incredible hotel that she stayed in. And I was sitting there looking around at all the other uh, women that were so well put together. It's hard not to compare and to feel sorry for myself as I looked down at my out-of-style dress. It was the only thing, to be honest, that I could find that was actually clean. My unwashed hair was pulled up in a hair clip, and I was afraid that I could still smell peanut butter in it. I was feeling pretty pathetic when Janice turned to me and handed me a beautifully wrapped package, and she said, I bought this for you. It was a book on the great cathedrals of Europe. I wasn't exactly sure why she'd given it to me until I read her inscription. The inscription was this, to Charlotte, with admiration for the greatness of what you are building when no one sees. In the days ahead, I would read, no, devour the book. And I would discover what would become for me life-changing truths after which I could pattern my work. No one can say who built the, the great cathedrals in Europe. We have no record of their names. These builders gave their whole lives for a work that they would never even see finished. They made great sacrifices and they expected no credit. The passion of their building was fueled by their faith that the eyes of God saw everything they did. A legendary story in the book told of a rich man who came to visit the cathedral while it was being built and he saw a workman carving a tiny bird on the inside of a beam. 
(laughs) He was puzzled and asked the man, why are you spending so much time carving that board into a beam that will be covered by the roof? No one will ever see it, he said. And the workman replied with these words. He says, because God sees. She said, I closed the book, feeling the missing piece fall into place in my life. It was almost as if I heard God whisper to me, I see you. I see the sacrifices you make every day, even when no, no one around you does. No act of kindness you do goes unseen. No sequin that you've sewn on, no cupcake you've baked is too small for me to notice or too small for me to smile over. You're building a great cathedral, but you can't see right now what it will become. But I see and I know. Isn't that a great story? But not only is it a great story for moms, I think it's a great story for all of us because I think all of us can kind of resonate with the heartbeat behind it a little bit. I think, has anyone here ever felt like no one saw you? Like no one knew exactly what it was that you were going through. Like no one appreciated or valued your efforts. Have you ever felt alone as though no one saw or understood what you were doing? Or even who you were or what you were going through. Moms ever feel that way? Dads ever feel that way? Students ever feel that way? Singles ever feel that way? If so, then this is the place for you to be today. We're gonna learn some lessons from uh, a few individuals the Old Testament book, first book of the Bible, Genesis uh, chapter 16. We're going to learn some individuals uh, that I think experienced some of those very same things, kind of bought into a few of the lies that we'll look at today and came to discover that there is a God who sees all. And that's both comfort probably and a little bit unnerving at times, but a God who sees, a God who cares, and a God who is at work. Let me give you a little uh, context here before we jump into Genesis 16. By the way, if you've got your Bibles, open them up to Genesis 16. You can follow along. If you've got the Ignite Church app, you can click on there. There's notes you can follow along, the YouVersion Bible. Look it up someplace or you can follow along on the screen as well if you don't have any of those things. A little context um, about the the main characters of uh, Genesis 16 are... uh, Two people, Abraham and, and Sarah, are the two kind of main characters. A couple chapters before, God had called to Abraham, then called Abram, to leave his home, to leave his family, to leave sort of everything he knew behind and to follow him on a journey. And so he packs up himself and his wife and their their immediate family, and they take off for this distant country, this promised land, except God never really told them where they were going or what they were doing or how they'd know when they got there. And so everything was unknown about it. It was a faith journey uh, of the most extreme kind. God says, come and follow me. And, uh, and miraculously, they do. In the midst of that, as God is telling them that he's going to you know, take them on a journey, that he's, gonna, he's got good plans in store for them, he makes this promise uh, that he makes to them. It's uh, referred to and in, in enhanced as you go throughout the Old Testament. It's, it's the, promised, the promise that basically uh, gets claimed for Israel. It's the promise even of a coming Messiah, a promise uh, that they'll be given a new family. And here's, here's the promise that, that, that is first given to Abraham. God says this to him. He says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. And all the people of the world, all the people on earth will be blessed through you and your descendants. 
Now, this is a pretty cool promise. He, he goes on to say, I mean, it's going to be great. You're going to be my people. I'm going to be your God. I'm going to walk with you and be with you. It's an amazing promise that, again, you hear echoed all the way throughout the pages of the Old Testament. There's only one problem. This promise is given to Abraham, and it's given to his wife, Sarah. But it's given to him even though Sarah is barren. She can, she's unable to have children. At this particular time when the promise is given, Abraham is 75 years old. There's a pretty decent chance she can't have kids. They've been trying in this culture, right? Having kids was everything. And so there's a pretty decent chance they've been trying to have kids for decades and decades and decades and decades, right? Years and years and years. And every time, no kid, no kid. It's pretty hard to believe a promise that's so big, that seems so out of touch, that maybe is even so close to the heart of what Abraham and Sarah longed for most. They can't even kind of figure out or imagine how God could provide, and yet they choose to follow him anyway, at least at first. They follow him, and they trust him. They go on this journey. He takes them to a place that... Uh, one day, his, uh, dis- Abraham and Sarah's descendants, one day their descendants would, would inherit and would live in. God protected them throughout a severe famine. God protected them from a king, even from some family infighting. They eventually make it to this promised land. It seems as though every part of this promise is coming true except one. Probably the thing that they wanted more than any of the rest of it. No kids. Even after God made the promise, Years and years and years and years go by. No baby, no promised child. And they begin to doubt. They begin to waver a little bit and wonder what is going on. That's a fascinating story. And uh, there's great stuff in here. But in the midst of waiting for God to come through, while they're waiting in the desert of sorts, there's sort of three different lies that get introduced into their lives. And I, I think there's things that in, in each of these that we'll resonate with as well. I think it's similar to the lies that we can fall into in our lives as well when uh, it seems as though God isn't coming through, when it seems like God isn't keeping his promises. And so I want to look at those today. Uh, I want to look at basically three lies and the truth, <laughs> okay? So uh, we'll look at three lies that I think they buy into and then just the overarching truth of this passage and the, and the, the, um, the promise of this passage that applies to you and me. So that's where we're going. We're just going to kind of walk through the story, nothing fancy today. Genesis 16, uh, starting with verse one, says this. It says, now Sarah, uh, Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. And so she said to Abraham, the Lord has kept me from having children. Now let me just stop right there for a second and just say, man, dealing with infertility stuff can be horribly painful, can it? We have had some family members that we've walked through this with for years and years and years. And man, I I never realized before how painful it can be, right? uh, Sort of a reminder every month, like no baby, no baby, no baby. In eras like that, I mean, I can remember them talking about how painful it could be to come to a Mother's Day service at church or to go anywhere on Mother's Day. And just a painful reminder that there's no children. And I just have to say, if that is you, and if I, I get that Mother's Day is sort of a mixed bag, right? It's, it's a, a great celebration for some, and it is terribly painful for others for lots of reasons. But if this is one of those, um, if you would find yourself more on the on the side of things that Mother's Day is a painful um, holiday, 
I just want to say, first of all, I'm sorry, and it, I, I hope you can stick with us because what I hope you'll hear today is that even when Mother's Day or uh, any other day is terribly painful, I think the thrust of this passage is going to be a reminder that God says to you, he says, I see you. I know your pain. I know what you're experiencing. I'm there and I care. So don't miss that today. But that's, it's, that's sort of the context of what's happening in, in our story, right? Sarah, uh, in, this, in this story, it's in the context of infertility that, that every month, that every holiday that Sarai is reminded, no miracle, no promised child, no God coming through. More than anything else, Sarah wants to be a mom, but every month, just silence, nothing. And finally, you can just hear the desperation as Sarah sort of screams out, God is to blame, right? He just doesn't see. He just doesn't care. He's not coming through. It's all his fault. It's unjust. It's not right. And I think that's really the first lie, the first temptation for us to believe in situations like that is to, is to believe it. I'm overlooked, right? That's sort of the first one. I'm overlooked by God. God has forgotten me. God has called us to leave our house, our people, our possessions. He's called us to follow him into the middle of nowhere with no plan, and we did it. We followed. We've given everything to to you, God, and you promised that you would give us a family, but you haven't followed through. You've overlooked us. You've forgotten us. You've abandoned us. We're overlooked. Or maybe you just don't care, God. You ever feel overlooked by others or by God? Ever feel like no one sees you or wants you or values you? Ever feel as though God has forgotten you? It's weird, but I hear similar cries to this all the time. We've got friends up in Wisconsin that uh, planted a church. They risked a bunch and the church plant went south. They lost... um, all kinds of stuff. They lost a lot of income. They lost their house kind of in the deal. And I can remember them sitting in our living room and crying and saying, man, we risked everything and God didn't come through. It's a real similar word. It's sort of the, the word, the, the same sort of temptation. God overlooked me. He forgot about us. I think we've seen similar things in this region lately as cat employees and teachers and others have maybe lost their jobs and they're struggling through this and they've been pink slipped and they're afraid and they're experiencing loss and they're applying for jobs and applying for jobs and applying for jobs and nothing. And they're, they're wondering and they're crying, God, have you forgotten me? Am I overlooked? I think we hear cries like this sometimes. We had a a situation with one of our kids this week where we could hear this kind of cry like, I'm doing things right. I'm working hard. I'm trying to to do this. And people don't see me. They don't value me. God, have you forgotten me? Why are other people raised up when I'm overlooked kind of thing? It's a regular sort of temptation. It's a regular sort of cry of the human heart. I'm working my tail off. I'm putting in more time. I'm living with more integrity, sacrificing for the company, and somebody else gets the promotion. You've overlooked me, God. Or maybe, moms, I'm cooking and cleaning and working and investing in my kids. I'm running them all over the place. I'm providing all kinds of opportunities, and it seems like no one cares. My labor is just overlooked. It's not going that well. Does anyone see my effort? Does anyone care? God, do you see me or have you forgotten and overlooked me? 
Some take it even a little bit further like Sarah does. Maybe you do see me, God, and maybe, in fact, you are the one that's to blame. Maybe it's your fault, God. Maybe you like seeing me suffer or something. Well, if that's the case, if if somebody is going to fix this mess, it's going to have to be me because God either doesn't care or doesn't see or whatever. And so we're tempted to believe the lie like Sarah does. Let's go on, verse two. So she says, first of all, it's your fault, God. And then she comes up with a plan and she sort of hatches it here. She says, go, uh, Abram, go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarah said. And after Abram had been living in Canaan for 10 years, Sarah, uh, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. How many think this is a really good idea at this point? No, this is not going anywhere good, but it unveils sort of the, the second sort of lie or the second thing that I see in this passage that I think all of us can be tempted to do sometimes, and that's uh, I'm just on my own. It's sort of a tendency for us to just take matters into our own hands and sort of work it out no matter the cost, right? I want children. I must have children, she's focused on, right? And I will do whatever I have to do. God isn't providing, so I will do whatever I have to do to make this thing work out. I'm on my own. God's forgotten me. He's overlooked me. He's abandoned me. So I'm on my own. Eventually, Sarah's desperation and pain levels get high enough that she decides just to take control of the thing. And so she comes up with a plan. I've got a great idea, she thinks. I'm I'm going to get my husband, whom I love, to sleep with somebody else, my servant Hagar. And if he can get her pregnant, then I will kind of have a baby vicariously and I can build my family through her. And the ends justify the means, she thinks. And so Hagar, uh, meet Abraham. And Abram, meet Hagar. You know, the language, this is fascinating, just a little something I learned this week, maybe you'll find it fascinating too. The language in this passage, there's only one other place in all of scripture that uses the same sort of sequence and the same sort of language uh, that, that uh, gets used in this passage where it says, uh, Sarai took Hagar and she gave her to her husband and he slept with her. It's a real, it's identical language to something that happens in Genesis 3 where Eve takes the fruit, she gives it to her husband and her husband then consumes it. Isn't that interesting? How did that work out in the garden? Bad, right? That's where sin comes into the, the world. That's where death comes into the picture. That, you know, he says, man, you're gonna have increased pains in childbirth. So every, every woman that's had babies in this room can say, thanks a lot right? Adam and Eve, right? <laughs> Increased pain in childbirth. Before that, it wasn't, it wasn't the same kind of experience. I mean, it was bad news. There's going to be toil in your work, right? I mean, increased toil. I mean, bad news. And I think if she could have sat back and thought through this, do you think she could have maybe seen this coming? Like maybe this isn't a good idea. It didn't really work out so well for Adam and Eve when they took this path. Maybe there's a, maybe I should give pause to this. Maybe I should choose a different route. Do you think maybe she could have seen that coming? It's not rocket science, right? Any, if she would have stopped and asked the opinion of anybody around her, you think somebody else could have maybe given her some good counsel? <laughs> okay, that's pretty weak. You don't think so? Nobody else could have seen this coming. Yeah, I don't know. I didn't see it coming. Right? <laughs> kind of thing. Right? I mean, it's, it's pretty common sense kind of stuff. But I'll, I'll tell you what she wasn't thinking, was she? She was in pain. 
She had set her eyes. She had set her sights on something that she had to have even more important to her than following God. Even more important to her than following God's ways. She had to have it. She, she was in pain. And sometimes I think, man, when we are in pain and we, are, we have set our eyes on something like that that we must have no matter the cost, we can talk ourselves to, into the stupidest things. We can, we, can, uh, we can believe all kinds of things. I remember hearing one time uh, somebody's talking about rationalizing our own ability to rationalize. And they, talk about, they said it's like rational lies. And I think on our own, when we are experiencing pain, when we are convinced that life is found in this thing over here that we can't have and God's not giving us, we will rationalize ourselves to death and we will start down a bad path. Now, it's, it's kind of a, a no-brainer, right? I mean, when we start talking about this and, and talking about heading down that path and rationalizing, it's easy for us, especially in the church, to be like, well, man, I don't, who would ever be stupid enough to do something like this? I mean, who, who would ever be dumb enough to kind of go down a path and go to extreme measures, even go against what we know God says because we set our eyes on something? And I, let me just ask a couple clarifying questions because I think the answer is we would, right? I think the answer is all of us would. So let me ask a couple of, of questions. Don't raise your hand. Don't acknowledge. Don't nudge your neighbor. Don't look at them like, you know, kind of thing. Just, this is just between you and God, right? But a uh, couple clarifying questions. How many of us have credit card debt? Again, don't raise your hand. How many of us have thousands and thousands of dollars of credit card debt? Statistically, most of us in the room probably have that kind of credit card debt. Now, let me just say, if you and I have credit card debt, and then in some sense, it's very similar to this kind of thing. What it means is that we've believed that we needed to have something that God did not provide for us, but we saw it, we set our eyes on it, and we thought, I have to have that in order for my life to be good. And so, do we know that God says debt is not a real good idea? Most of us probably do. do have we heard Dave Ramsey and thought, Oh my goodness, right? Have you, heard, have you ever had the radio station on and heard somebody talking about credit card debt? And so we've, we've heard this kind of stuff. We're Americans, it's on, it's everywhere, saying, man, people get it, the, themselves into credit card debt, tens of thousands of dollars of it and can't get out to save their lives. I mean, do we, do we know this kind of stuff? Yes, we know it, and yet we do it anyway. Swipe, 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 because we, there's something we have to have, we want to have, and we will do anything, even though it goes against what we know is true. We, it goes against what we think and know is a good idea, but we have to have it regardless of the cost. God is not providing the way I think he should. And so I will take matters into my own hands. Anybody ever do that? How about this one? And again, don't make eye contact. I'm not talking about anybody. But, but how about this? I would say it's pretty darn rare. Statistics would say it's pretty darn rare uh, for a man and a woman to keep themselves pure before marriage, sexually, before marriage. Would, would you say that you have pursued purity radically, right, in your relationships outside of marriage and before marriage? Or, again, statistically, most of us would probably fall outside of that. Or, were we saying, I, I want to live as though I'm married, but God isn't providing who I want and who I need right now. 
and I don't want to lose them, or I don't want to, you know, whatever. And so I'll sleep with them outside. Of, I, do I know it's not a good idea? Yeah. Have I heard it again? Have we heard this kind of thing? My goodness, we've heard it galore, right? Is abstinence a good idea? Have you seen people get hurt when they've had sex outside of marriage again and again and again? Have you seen people's hearts get crushed and ripped out of them through bad relationships? All kinds of, absolutely. Have we seen this kind of thing to be true? Yeah, and yet we've done it anyway. Why? Because we had to have something that God wasn't providing for us. We don't really think about it like this. We're not often that honest about it. But most of us rational lies in similar kinds of ways. I'm on my own. I, I'm the only one. I need to handle my own money. I, you know, I need to decide uh, how I'm going to conduct myself at work. I need to get ahead. I need that promotion. And God's not coming through, so I'll take matters into my own hands. Right? God's not giving me what I want in a relationship, so I'll take care of that myself. Friends, as we'll see in a moment, when we step outside like that, when we think we're on our own and we are taking matters into our own hands, it's such a bad idea. It's part of the reason we need community. We need other godly people in our lives because you and I can rationalize ourselves to death. And we need people that love us and love God that can say, you know what? This trajectory is going to cause unbelievable pain in your lives. So the first lie says, I'm overlooked. God has forgotten me. Nobody cares. I'm on my own. The second one says, I'm on my own. I need to take matters into my own hands. I'll work this all out myself. I'll go to whatever lengths I have to to take care of me and, and to provide what I want and what I need. Uh, and I think I'm going to skip the... Uh, the sins of commission and omission, because sometimes, I'll, I'll hit the highlights, but just as, as we're talking about this, right? I mean, sometimes uh, it's active. Sometimes our uh, acts of taking things into our own hands are, uh, have to deal with sins of commission, right? Like Sarah's the one, she's easy to blame in this story, right? She's the one, she actually did, you know, she took action on this. She set it all up. And you can look at that and say, what a foolish woman, right? <laughs> what an idiot or whatever. But you know what? Like, what's Abraham's deal in, in, in this whole, his is a little bit more passive, which is often the case with men, a little bit more of a passive thing. But while his wife is coming up with this plan that's gonna bring tremendous pain to the world, to their relationship, what is he doing in the midst of this? She's like, hey, why don't, I'm, here's my servant. Why don't you go and sleep with her? What's his response? Does he, does he, is, is he like, man, let's, let's pray about this. Let's think this through. I don't, I don't know. This is, gonna, this is disobeying God. What's his response? Okay, right? Yes, dear. Yeah, yes, dear. Okay. Like, come on, dude. Like, this, the consequences of this are going to be unbelievable. You can't see this. He just, just kind of gets swept away, whatever you want, even later in the story, right? Even later in the story, uh, when, when uh, conflict comes between Hagar and Sarah, and she's like, and Sarah's like, man, I'm going to take this woman out. I'm going to beat her. I'm going to treat her poorly. He's like, hey, whatever right? I mean, she, she's yours. It's okay. I mean, she's your servant. Whatever you want is fine. Sometimes our, our foolishness and our rationalized comes in the form of us just being passive as men. Like you should have stepped up there, Abraham, right? And been a man, right? Lead your wife. I mean, bring some counsel, bring some godliness into this deal. Sometimes it comes in that kind of form too, where we just feel like, hey, I'm just on my own, whatever. I don't want to cause conflict. So we'll just kind of go along with whatever's happening here lambs to the slaughter, right? I mean, come on. We got to step up. So anyway, 
Uh, with that, I'll just kind of keep going. Sometimes it's, it's the temptation or uh, 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 the lie just says I'm overlooked. Sometimes it's I'm on my own. And the, th- the third one we'll get to in a second. Look at Genesis uh, 16, 4 through 6. says this, when she, Hagar, knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. And then Sarai said to Abraham, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. Now this is just fascinating, right? In verse two, uh, Sarah says, the Lord's to blame. And now she's, she's blaming who? She's blaming who? Her husband, right? Now that never happens in our home. Does it happen in yours? That never happens back and forth, right? We never put blame on other people when it should rest squarely on our own shoulders. We never do that, do we? Again, this is just classic. When we sin and the consequences start circling around our head like vultures, right? We start looking for someone else to blame. It's their fault. We all do this. This is classic going on. She says this, I put my slave in your arms and now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. Whoever saw this coming? May the Lord judge between you and me. Now this is his response. Again, another stellar moment. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. And then Sarai mistreated Hagar and she fled from her. Just a quick observation. Uh, you know, does, uh, did Sarah and Abraham sin? Did it solve their problems? Did going after that thing that they had to have, did that, when they got it, did that take care of everything? She came up with a great solution, right? Did, that, did, did uh, her workaround, did that uh, provide what she was longing for? No, not at all. Did it create more problems? It's always that way. 100% of the time, right? When we start going after those things and we're crossing lines and we're crossing boundaries, we know this is not God's way that he would provide. And we think, oh man, I'm gonna take matters into my own hands. I'm gonna figure this all out on my own. Man, there's always consequences to that. There's always negative consequences to that. It didn't fulfill God's promise. God would eventually take, I mean, would God keep his promise as we read on in the story, God always keeps his promises, right? Did God provide Sarah and Abraham with a child eventually? Okay, that's weak. Yes, right? Yes, he totally did. He did exactly what he said he would do, just not in their time, in his time, right? Listen to this. This is a quote from Ben Patterson. I thought it was great this week. He says, when God makes a promise, he means it exactly how he says it. He doesn't want our help. He wants our trust. To wait for God is to bow before his superior wisdom and timing when it comes to the things that we want. It is to confess that he, not we, is the one that's in charge. Is that a good quote? Now, I'm not suggesting that we all become passive human beings, right? That we just sit back and just, we never do anything. That's not what I'm suggesting, right? But man, when we're talking about this kind of thing, if, if our hearts are so attached and so um, allured by something other than God that we will cross lines that we should not cross to go after it, to try and, to try and see God provide, that's not God's provision, that's rational lies. And instead, we need to submit that to God and wait on him. What did the sin accomplish? Nothing good. Now there's jealousy. These two children that eventually come out of this, Ishmael, the son of Hagar, and Isaac, who's eventually the son of Sarah, these two children will become the father of two different and opposing people 
who are still at war to this day, the Israelites and the Arabs. Never any conflict in that part of the world, is there? Back to the story. It says that Sarai ends up mistreating Hagar. The word that is used there is the same word that they talk about, the heavy-handed Egyptian taskmasters, how they treated their Israelite slaves. Uh, I mean, it's a, it's a picture of oppression, a very harsh treatment. It leads to even more sin, more division, more, distri- more uh, mistreatment. And she eventually, Hagar runs away, right? She's, she's like, I gotta get out of here. We pick it up in, in verse seven. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert, and it was a a spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said to her, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress Sarai, she answered. And then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. Takes us to the third kind of lie that I think is here, which says, I'm overwhelmed and there is no hope. Alone, angry, and afraid, the young Egyptian woman uh, takes off running into the desert, running away from her problems, overwhelmed by the one that's been mistreating her, running away from the one that she has despised and even envied. And at this point, the Lord sends an angel to tell her, go back home and submit. I will do a work there. I will do a work you can't even imagine. Now, I don't really know a lot about what she may be thinking here, but I can imagine I mean, she's been treated so poorly that she's willing to risk being a runaway slave of sorts. She's willing to run into the desert, right, to avoid uh, such harsh conditions rather than stay. It's not too tough to imagine her feeling very much alone at this point, as though nobody cares, as though there's a great injustice that has been done to her, as though her tears matter to no one, as though no one really cares, no one hears her cry. Not hard to imagine her feeling alone and helpless. And yet, let me turn the corner here and say, I want you to, we're gonna, in just a minute, we're gonna finish the story. There's four more verses and I just want you to hear the truth that comes out here because we see from this very story, there is a God who sees that, that, that reminds us we are never overlooked. We are never on our own. Even when we are overwhelmed, he is present, he is powerful, and he is at work. He has not abandoned you. He will never leave you. He is good and he sees Listen to the verse, listen to this uh, verse 10. It says this, the angel added, I will increase your descendants. He's talking to Hagar here. I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now pregnant and you'll give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, which means God hears. For the Lord has heard of your misery She gave this name uh, to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me, she says. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That's why the well uh, was called uh, Bir Lahoy Roy, which means well of the living one who sees me. Still there to this day between Kadesh and Bered. Now here's the truth that I just want to hit today, right? Here's the truth. Our God is the one who sees you, right? When you feel overlooked, he sees you. When you feel like uh, you're on your own, he's there, he's present, he's working, he sees you and he will provide. When you feel overwhelmed and like there is no hope, he will come to you and he can show you there is reason for great hope. God always keeps his promises. God always fulfills his purposes. 
This is where the story starts to get really good because he is the God who sees and hears you and me. He is not far off and aloof. He is not distant or detached. He is not uncaring or unpowerful. No, he is present. He is powerful. He sees, he cares, and he works. He sees this woman who was lost and misplaced, a woman who has been experiencing misery. She's been used. She's been mistreated and abused, and yet God sees her when no one else does. And he wants to remember that he heard and that he has seen her. And so he says, man, take, take your son Ishmael, who you will have, and give him the name that means God hears so that you will always remember that I am present, that I remember you, that I see you, and I'm working to provide. He sees all. He's the God who sees you no matter your situation. He sees everything. He's the God who sees your sin, which could be a little unnerving, but he sees and he's able to redeem and forgive and restore. He sees us when we are running in the wrong direction. He sees and he knows us. He sees our misery, our pain. He sees the selfless acts we do in secret that no one else does. He sees the way we serve and love. He sees the way we give. He sees the way we live with integrity or not. He sees all. He sees us in our loneliness. He sees the little stuff that nobody else does. He sees the the intention of our hearts and our thoughts. He knows our attitudes, our actions, our behaviors. He sees all and yet he treats us with love and mercy, which is just jaw-dropping. It was astounding to me this week as I was thinking about this story. I mean, God knows the whole rest of the story. He knows how all this is gonna turn out. This is not a shocker or a surprise to him. But of all the people that God could see and respond to mercifully in this story, he chooses Hagar. Now later, is he gracious and does he keep his promise with Abraham and Sarah? Yeah, I mean, he provides them with the son. He keeps his promise and all that kind of stuff. But it's, it's Hagar that he, he shows his faithfulness and his goodness to. It's Hagar who was, pres- who was pregnant, excuse me, with Ishmael, a man who even in this prophecy is known throughout his entire life as a man of division, a man who's pretty much at war with everyone. His descendants would be the enemies of God's people, Israel, to this day throughout history. One that would slaughter the people of God. One that would hate them. And yet God sees Ishmael. He sees his mother, Hagar. He sees them. He hears and knows their story and is filled with compassion and mercy. It's a little bit like if you knew all of history and you knew Hitler and who he was going to be, if you could rewind and jump back in the story to when his mother was pregnant with him and you had an opportunity to end the whole thing and yet because you are so forgiving and loving and gracious, you would give them another chance. You would be gracious and loving to them. Now we hear stuff like that and in our own human brains, we scratch our heads and we think, I don't get it. <laughs> like I don't, I don't get being that kind of gracious. One thing I think we do get though is aren't we glad that when God comes into our stories, that when God sees us, he treats us with love and with mercy and with grace. He doesn't just treat us or see us with eyes of judgment, with eyes of condemnation, with eyes that say, well, you shouldn't have done that. Boom. Instead, he reaches out and he says, you know what? I have a promise for you. I have a promise. I see you. I I heard your cry. I am present and I care. I don't know. Some of us maybe need to hear that today. That no matter what is going on in your life, 
no matter what is happening in your world, that God sees you. And he's gracious to you. Even when you feel overlooked, you feel like nobody else sees, nobody else cares. You feel like maybe like there's injustice, like no one else has kept their promise to you. The living God says, I see you and I always keep my promises. I see you and I am always gracious. I'm forgiving. I see your sin and yet I'm gracious and forgiving still. There's a quote I ran across uh, from R.C. Sproul. It says this, there are many things in my life, you know, pop that up. Yeah, there are many things in my life that I did not want to put under the gaze of Christ. Yet I know there is nothing hidden from him. He knows me better than my wife knows me, and yet he loves me still. This is the most amazing thing of all about God's grace. It would be one thing for him to love us if we could fool him into thinking that we were better than we actually are, but he knows better. He knows all there is to know about us, including those things that could destroy our reputation. He is minutely and acutely aware of every skeleton in every closet, and he loves us still. It's the God who sees us, the God who cares, the God who is present and active, the God who keeps his promises. Even the promise that, uh, that God gave to Abram and to Sarah, um, the promises said, man, I'm gonna make you the father of many nations. And in fact, so much so that you are gonna be a blessing through your descendants, through your offspring, the entire world will be blessed. God kept that promise too. That kept, he kept that promise too. And in a time and in an era where people thought that God had abandoned them and they thought they were on their own and said so they were going their own way, God cared so much for them that he sent another promised son into this world in the person of Jesus Christ who lived a perfect life and who died a horrible death. He was known as the God who was with us, the Emmanuel, the God who was with us. It was a way that God could say, I see you. I see your suffering. I see your sin. I see your separation. I see all, this, all these things over here that are causing you pain and hardship, and I care, and I'm in it so much that I'm gonna die so that you can come back home, so that you can be restored, so that you can know my grace and my love and the new life that I have for you. Friends, I don't know where you're at with God this morning. I'm not sure what's happening. Maybe you're here today and you're a mom and you're in the midst of it and just the going through the struggle of it. Maybe you just need to be reminded today that God sees and he cares. The work you do is invaluable. Maybe you're in the midst of suffering, injustice of some kind. Maybe there's just ongoing pain in you and you just need to be reminded that the living God sees you. He knows you. He is working out his good and perfect plan and will for you. You can trust him. You can wait on him. It's worth it. He's for you. He's, he loves you like crazy. He thinks you're worth dying for. Maybe some of us have made our own Ishmael of sorts. We have gone our own way and decided we're going to take things into our own hands. We're going to work this out on our own and we have, the, the cycle has continued and it, we've hit bottom. 
and we feel the weight of, of the consequences just, uh, of our actions just weighing down on us and maybe it feels hopeless. And maybe this morning you need to be reminded that there's a God who sees, who's filled with compassion and grace, who can take even the most horrific circumstances and he can redeem them if you'll turn to him this morning. Even the worst sins he can forgive if you'll turn to him and find that grace and forgiveness this morning. I don't know where you're at. I don't know exactly what God's saying to you, but my, my prayer and my hope is that this morning all of us would humble ourselves before God. We would, we would just cry out, God, we need you. Would you come in and uh, make your presence known? Thank you that you see me, that you care, that you're filled with grace and compassion and love. We want you, God. Come and fill us and lead us and guide us and make us new. Redeem. Make your presence known. Let's pray. God, that's our uh, cry this morning. Come and have your way. Come and fill us in ways that we are suffering or in pain. Uh, Would you speak and make your presence known? Remind us that you see us. You are the God who sees and hears and cares is present. For the areas of our lives where we feel hopeless, would you bring your hope? Would you remind us that you are a God who always keeps his promises, even when others do not? Would you draw us close and help us to cling to you, God? In areas where there is sin and junk and consequences for our rebellion, for going our own way and taking matters into our own hands, either actively or passively, God, would you would you cleanse us and would you wash us? Would you restore and redeem? God, we're sorry for going our own way. Forgive us for taking matters into our own hands. Cleanse us and make us new and lead us from this point forward. We need you, Jesus. Thanks, God, for your faithfulness, for your goodness, for your love that never fails. It's unchanging. Open our eyes to see you this morning in Jesus' name.